All right, everyone, welcome again to the Equal Justice Podcast. The Equal Justice Podcast is a forum for all those who seek truth, value tradition, and fight to defend the foundations of a moral and a just society. I'm joined again with Jacob Daniel, Logan Zepieri, and Josh Mateka. Um, how are you guys doing today? Everybody all right? Josh, are you excited that I can now pronounce your name? I'm uh, ecstatic fluid. that you're saying it right, the right way. Not Madiaka, not, uh, <laughs> Although Madiaka, I don't know how else you say it. But... <laughs> Makes Matika you more Japanese, or... perhaps, than, than Yeah, you exactly. <laughs> but... Gotta spice it up sometimes. So I just um, learned that you're the only Josh Matiaka. <laughs> yes, the only, the only Josh Mateka in the world. For, so for all you uh, stalkers out there, just, <laughs> right. uh, I'll be your target for the group. Yeah. Hate mail can go to one place. Yeah. Like, it's like it's like hunger games you know like i volunteer yeah well, yeah you are the one that's for sure because you know there's millions of logan zepieris out there oh right right um, <laughs> logan will get confused over and over again oh yeah you know so anyways um on to more serious business i suppose um today we are going to be looking at uh again one of the maybe two or three major issues or seemingly major issues in the church right now. Uh, critical race theory, uh, something we've spoken about in the past. But today, I think we wanted to take uh, more of an in-depth look um, at the theory itself, at some of the uh, movements that it has spawned. But we also wanted to try and answer, uh, at least get some clarity on the question of, for those in the church who seem to be uh, wanting to embrace, uh, whether it be sort of the popular level uh, exposition of CRT with authors like maybe Robin D'Angelo or Ibrahim Kendi, or, you know, the, the older critical race theory scholars, I'm um, thinking like Derek Bell, some people that whose names will come up as sort of the more, you know, the Kimberly Crenshaw's, the originators, um, which goes back 30 or 40 years now, at least. Um, and the question we're, we're, we're going to try and explore is, okay, is this all just a theory? Um, or, you know, where does the real action take place? Where does the real activism occur? Um, what things are people really looking to, to change? In other words, does the, you know, does the dog have any bite? Um, so, Jacob, why don't you uh, start us off with just some initial thoughts on that question of, is this pure theory um, or does it have some real bite to it? And are people actually going to make some real changes in the church? Great. Yeah. Um, before I do that, I just want to plug um, uh, one of our episodes that will be uh, published very soon. I recently did um, an interview, a podcast interview with Dr. Glenn Sunshine. Mm -hmm. Um, he's a professor of history at uh, the Central Connecticut University. And this is the exact question we've been dealing with there more in detail uh, in terms of whether the church should adopt any aspect of critical race theory. So I just wanted to plug that and also mention to our audience that we've been doing a lot of uh, recent episodes on this very uh, topic of critical race theory. So please go and look it up uh, and subscribe to our channel as well. So, um, this is how I understand uh, the issue with critical race theory is. In the past, we understood as collective enterprise that there are certain structures that has been put, put up 
um, mainly as Christians, we think that these are in some sense a transcendent uh, structures in that family, church, and government. Uh, but there are other substructures as well. So throughout history, our attempts had been to direct these structures to the right end. Whereas with critical race theory, the issue is that we are dismantling these structures, wanting to redefine it um, without giving any promise for as to what we want to replace it with. Uh, the picture that we get is one of replacement with no guarantee as to what we are replacing it with uh, would not end up doing the same thing that we are questioning with the current structure. So in that, I see that it's not merely in terms of uh, theoretical ideas, but there's an intentional effort uh, to dismantle these structures and it has practical consequences that the church, as well as people in general must understand. And there are many, regardless of different disciplines, regardless of different faith, regardless of even uh, a lot of atheists understanding the importance of the danger of dismantling these structures. Um, as, as a practical outcome of critical race theory, um, giving into such a kind of uh, uh, pressure over culture would have its own consequences, which I believe I, we're going to talk about in detail today. Right. And one of those structures uh, that obviously seems to be connected, fundamentally connected to critical race theory is the structure of the family. Yes. Um, you know, we saw that that was on, uh, for example, uh, part of the Black Lives Matter mission statement for a long time until they took it down. I don't know if it's uh, been put back up there, but that was obviously an area of contention for at least some Christians. Um, yeah. Do you, do you know what the motivation for that was for taking it down off the BLM website? Because I heard about that recently as well, that they, they removed it. I mean, I'd only I be speculating, but just that it maybe yeah. it was unpopular and hurting their their cause or something. Although I, mm. I think that they, you know, if, if, you know, what it says, you know, what it looks like to me is you take it down because you're losing popularity, but that doesn't mean you still aren't pushing for it. Uh, right. I don't. Well, my understanding is that one of the motivations that could be there is the the kind of. So what was happening with the, uh, with the way CRT was being adopted within the church without questioning much or without understanding its origins, without understanding um, the effects that it would have on our culture, people were giving into it emotionally. But eventually, as they realized, they were, these uh, set of values and principles were questioning the very fundamental value of Christian faith at the end, uh, the very, very structure of a nuclear family. Uh, you know, the, the idea of nuclear family is God's idea. The first family was a nuclear family. Um, but, but the Black Lives Matter was very intentional, I believe, in attacking the very structure of nuclear family in that because the whole idea rests on uh, a collective enterprise, as I said, a collective uh, lived experiences of people where you identify with groups, mm -hmm. not stand as individuals. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that BLM ever, the organization ever released a statement on why they removed that portion to answer Josh directly. I don't. So I think all of it's going to have to be speculation. And sure. I think once you get into more of this, the scholarship and uh, of CRT, I think, you know, again, speculating that they sort of overplayed their hand mm. and kind of saying we should also fight against the judicial family. I think that's underlying the entire debate is one of the aspects that they do want to see sort of 
how they would probably put it is like moved beyond. I think is, I think that's actually how BLM put it, but something about you know transcending these certain traditional norms, such as the traditional family. Um, so I think they kind a, of would play their hand in a cultural level and yeah. say, oh, we should retract that, even though I do think that is very much within line of their philosophical project. Right. Yeah, I think there, there's a level, I think they were losing their base as well within the Christian camp. A I mean, it's a political movement. Yeah. And that yeah. did have an impact in terms of their decision. I, I think so. Just like the, the way we are seeing with tech, big techs today. Uh, right. They, they took some decisions and now there's a backlash. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, and that is typical, you know, and that is that is telling, I think, of and it should be a warning to Christians to what kind of organizations and institutions we're willing to endorse or sidle up to, because it tells me that these that it's it, it's it's a it's really a pragmatism at play, isn't it? It's not this is not a truth-seeking endeavor, as we've talked about before. It's a social engineering endeavor, uh, right? Regardless of, which again, place, places it into that sort of postmodern existentialist, I think, camp, where, you know, truth is not something that we discover. We're not really even interested in transcendent persons or principles anymore. We're really just interested in how we can affect the social and material conditions in which we live, right, mm -hmm. in the hopes of changing ourselves. Um, and that, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking is a lot of people want to explore, we said a lot of people want to explore critical race theory as an analytical tool, the same way maybe people wanted to explore classical Marxism as an analytical tool to give us some insight into the human condition. And I think there's two terms sometimes that are getting conflated. We, maybe it would be better, best if we just make some distinctions. Compatibility versus similarity. So mm -hmm. I've, I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, CRT is fundamentally incompatible with Christianity. I think we'd all agree on that. Uh, the problem is I think there are things in CRT, as there were things in Marxism, that are similar to Christianity. In fact, I mean, many after the after Marx called Marx the failed Christianity, the failed replacement, right, of religion. And you know, we hear a lot of scholars, secular scholars, atheists. We've mentioned John McCorder's name several times here. Not John MacArthur, people. John McCorder, please look him up. Uh, Glenn Lowry, Shelby, etc. Andrew Sullivan, who have you know said this is this is another replacement religion. Right? So if there is an attempt to replace, consciously or unconsciously, it's going to have similarities to classical religions, traditional religions like Christianity. So I think the, the, the trick becomes to understand that there are similar, similarities there, but just because there are similarities there doesn't mean you accept the thing. Yeah, right. and well, in fact, I, I that's that, how the devil would work. He would present right. I was just something about to say that. Okay, right. That, that's what's ahead, so insidious Josh. about it. No, exactly. Yeah. That that's what's so insidious is it is so similar, right? But uh, when you look at the at the central tenets of it, they they are incompatible, and in fact, um, antithetical to to the gospel. Um, and and it's funny you mentioned that you know the transformation that um, uh, you know adherents of, of CRT will um, uh, stick to, which is 
Um, like you, for example, that transformation occurs from the outside in rather than the inside out. If we fix this system, uh, if we perfect uh, this system, whether it's the criminal justice system or whether it's um, what have you, part of, the, part of the social justice movement in different areas, if we um, really highlight and pinpoint these very specific scenarios, um, for example, uh, you know, with the biggest one being uh, police, uh, a white officer, and then a, a black uh, uh, victim um, in these situations. Uh, if we highlight that, and if we just solely focus on that, we can perfect this to the point where um, we virtually, we, we completely eliminate it from the system. And it, and it becomes such a, an obsession that I think the very pursuit of it, uh, ironically, um, undermines their efforts and actually uh, uh, harms the, the very people that they're trying to help. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy because you're right. It's, it's very similar. I think uh, Marxism in general has a lot of qualities. For example, uh, it, it, in Christianity, we, we want to help the oppressed when someone is, is genuinely like the, the, the good Samaritan, right? And, and so many other examples of that, um, both on a micro scale as well as a macro scale, like right with like Egypt and, and Israel. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's insidious because it, it really, the, and this is what you mentioned earlier, the regime that it's, uh, uh, Jacob, the, the regime that it's replacing it with, we don't even know necessarily what that is. And so what I think actually is of, of animal farm, right? Where the pigs, and for those of you not familiar with the story of animal farm, um, there's, there's a bunch of these animals. It's a cute little, little story that, uh, George Orwell, mm -hmm. um, George Orwell wrote a lot of cute stories. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we'd call them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cute little stories to read. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and it's, it's of all these farm animals and there's these pigs in particular who, who um, basically lead this regime uh, uh, against the, uh, the farmer who is the, the oppressor in this case. And they replace him and they, and long story short, at the end of the book, uh, they can't distinguish between the, the original farmer and the pigs who are now dressed in, in, in their clothing and, and basically assume their role. And so anyways, to tie it back to what you were saying, Jake, we, we don't know what it's replacing with. And in fact, um, to the extent that we, we can know, it seems to be heading in a bad direction. One thing that I'll add to that um, for our audience as an example, uh, and this, this is kind of connected with my dissertation, uh, uh, PhD dissertation, the whole idea of um, human dignity. And that's what, even with this podcast, we are aiming to promote that we're talking about equal justice and dignity of all individuals being intrinsic. Um, so the distinction is, I think there's a huge clash between definitions key fundamental definitions of, of values and principles that we held. And a major difference that you see, uh, if you look at in the past in which nations have conducted uh, their affairs is on this idea of like Western civilization is grounded on the Judeo-Christian uh, principle of dignity being intrinsic on the fact that we all are made in the image of God. Even the founders of this nation were appealing to that very notion. Whereas we don't find that fundamentally with other worldviews around the world. But as time has passed, people have adopted or accommodated the other understanding of dignity, dignity being acquired. Mm. So when we bring these definitions together and clash with each other with ideas, we are working with two different definitions. Uh, whereas the, the, the good part, uh, uh, the support that we have on our side is to appeal to a history where we can actually, though we may have failed in terms of practices and action, uh, but we can't. Uh, get away from that notion of dignity being intrinsic. That is what we need to fight for uh, and not replace it with something. If we do replace it with something, at the end, we will end up with 
um, uh, you know, the whole idea of which we were talking about, the whole idea of uh, utilitarianism in this, and this, in, at the end as to who is more effective, who is more valuable based on the capacity and potentiality that they're able to exercise. Not on the basis that they have intrinsic worth, which may be violated, but not annihilated. Uh, the other definition, dignity being acquired, annihilates dignity at the end. And in doing so, that, that is why we cancel out culture, uh, people. We cancel things, right? We, we excommunicate people, leave them out, uh, have no connection with them uh, to the point that they have no more voice, no more involvement, no more participation in the civil affair, or if, if we can call it civil. Yeah, and I, I wanted to jump in just real quick to, to respond to Tony's question. And, and again, you know, what Jacob was talking about, and even what Josh talked about, this idea of is criti can critical race theory be just an analytic lens? And when you, when you begin, I think, addressing the actual scholars, I'm going to do, do two quotes real quick, so I hope it's not too much time. But when you read these scholars, they don't view themselves as doing merely analytical work. And they'll actually deny that mm. the kind of analytical work that most of the Christian scholars, when they adopt this, are saying, they will flatly reject. So I got, this was in response to, I mean, I think in a, we'll probably end up doing a couple, an episode or a couple of them on Nathan, uh, okay, Cartagena, Cartagena. I guess. Cartagena's paper. paper. You should be able Cartagena's to know paper. Spanish with an Italian last name. That's pretty I, much the same. I, I, you know, there's a lot. I know. I'm just going to <laughs> refer to um, my, uh, yeah, my Italian heritage, I guess. <laughs> to, 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 you know, my, I don't know. So but Nathan's this is, paper. Uh, Dr. Nathan Cartagena, who is an assistant professor at Wheaton College. This yes, is the paper we're talking it was his about. paper. I was reading through it. He quotes yeah. quite, quite a few different individuals, tries to make the case. It's, it's you know, an analytic mm -hmm. lens. We need to know what they're talking about. So, so I decided to buy the book that he referred to extensively. You know, here it is. Um, Neil Shenvey also recommended it a long time ago. I didn't buy it when he recommended it, so I apologize for that. But um, right in the beginning, he quotes the forward. So this is by uh, Cornell West, right in the beginning. If you, you know, he ends his forward by saying this, he says, in short, critical race theory is an intellectual movement that is both particular to our postmodern and conservative times and part of a long tradition of human resistance and liberation. On the one hand, the movement highlights a creative, intentious-ridden fusion of theoretical self-reflection, formal innovation, radical politics, existential evaluation, reconstructive experimentation, and vocal anguish. Like all bold attempts to reinterpret and remake the world to reveal silence, silenced suffering and to relieve social misery, critical theorists put forward novel readings of a hidden past that disclosed the flagrant shortcomings of a treacherous present in the light of unrealized, though not unrealizable, possibilities for human freedom and equality. He continues, critical race theory is a gasp of emancipatory hope that law can serve liberation rather, rather than domination. Right. It's, it's not an analytic lens. I mean, it's, it's worldview building, and it's used to figure out how can you use law in a particular kind of way. I don't know, in the introduction, I don't know if it's one of, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, Neil Gatanda, Gary Peller, Kendall Thomas. I don't know if it's all of these. The, the introductory introduction is not signed at the end, but um, they say, uh, although critical race theory or rather critical race scholarship differs in object, argument, accent, and emphasis, it is nevertheless unified by two common interests. The first is to understand how a regime of white supremacy and its subordination of people of color have been created and maintained in America 
and in particular to examine the relationship between that social structure and professed ideals such as the rule of law and equal protection. The second, and this is important, is a, is a desire not merely to understand the vexed bond between law and racial power, but to change it. The essays gathered here thus share an ethical commitment to human liberation. So right. the, it, it's not, I mean, the idea of, oh, we're going to take this analytical, it's not, it, it will continue. And then the introduction, of course, goes on to say that the idea of an objective analytic perspective does not exist outside of the parameters of power. So this, I, I, I think there's a response to try to make critical race theory work for people who don't want to buy into some of its core tenets. And well, I think that's yeah. the, the, the fight that's happening right now. Well, and, and, and I think, you know, in uh, processing very quickly the, the, what you just cited from, those, uh, from that book, let's, I mean, just to try and reduce it, reduce it down to show again that the fundamental incompatibility, the key word there being what? Liberation, right? Well, yeah. this is an alternative means to liberate ultimate liberation for the of, for the human person well if you're a christian you already have an answer to how that occurs right <laughs> it's a transcendent answer it's 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 the person and work of christ this is a immunitizing of soteriology just like yeah. marx tried to immunitize eschatology this is an immunitizing of soteriology and what it reminds me of, Logan, is in Thomas Sowell's book, where he, A Conflict of Visions, when he lays out the, the constrained man versus the unconstrained man. And of course, he's playing off of several generations of prior philosophical thought on whether or not we are constrained by a human nature or essence, or whether or not we are unconstrained and we can literally remake or recreate our, ourselves. Yeah. And I just don't understand why people don't see through this crap because it keeps coming up over and over again that this yeah. is just man's attempt to be good apart from God, right? Which is the fundamental sin, the first sin, the originating right. sin, and also man's attempt to be God over his own kingdom that he creates. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's couched in this fancy language, fine and good. I mean, you'd like to, you know, I, I, I want to go back in my mind to Harry Frankfurt's essay on bullshit when I hear that, because I would like to reread that essay and then apply it to, you know, this typical kind of continental style of philosophy where you just make a lot of assertions that sound interesting and existential, but nobody knows what, what the hell they actually mean in, in praxis, right, Jacob? Uh, this is what I, I would add, uh, Tony, is as a warning for the church um, or a reminder that let's take a pause uh, before we, if we ever see a hint of liberation theology being resurrected back into the church, back into Christian institutions, in our chapels, um, if there is a hint, I think there is a need for Christians to take a pause and see where it is coming from and uh, what is motivating especially at this time, because we are seeing a lot of Christian institutions bringing in people intentionally to push this ideology. Yeah. Uh, and definitely it does have, given the cultural circumstances, cultural mood of the time, it has its roots in pushing an agenda, which is to dismantle structure completely uh, without replacing it with something that would honor God. And that's a point, speaking of, of 
the the impulse to tear down and and totally redo but not really say what you're going to replace the the thing you've just deconstructed what's going to come in its place Alistair McIntyre wrote a book 1968 book called Marxism and Christianity when he was still a Marxist this was before his conversion to Roman Catholicism in 81 after he wrote After Virtue but he makes this point he says both Christianity and Marxism are very good at analyzing the problem of human nature, human society and culture, right? The, the feeling of alienation, the need to be liberated, all that good stuff. But both fall short on the actual promise of heaven and what it's, what it's going to be like once we get there. Now, in, in Christianity, we do have the book of Revelation and other passages that give us a glimpse of that. But McIntyre was applying it to Marxism as well. It's kind of like, oh, we got to tear all this down because it's infected with this cancerous disease. Okay, well, once you excise the cancer, then what? We'll wait till we get there. Then we'll tell you. Because we really don't know, right? Well, well this is where I, I was reading. I talked to you about this, Tony, a few, few days ago. But today, I was, before we jumped on, I was reading through On the Genealogy of Morality by Frederick Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's a good point. What's what's interesting, and I brought this up to you before, is I, I'm wondering if, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to, to figure out how much of Nietzsche is just sort of just speculating, how much of his it's a theory he's putting down as a, some sort of systematic understanding of how the world works, it's, how it's written and how it's sectioned out sometimes can be hard to distinguish. But it's interesting once he starts, it, starts trying to um, explain what he calls the slave morality. We have the slave revolt against the good and the bad by introducing these moral terms. He's going to peg it on to the Jewish religious custom that's then going to be inherited through Christ. I'm not going to, you know, that, we could have a debate about that later. But the, it was interesting, though, as he says, that one of the fundamental um, aspects of the slave morality is it doesn't have a positive morality. It's, it's all negative. It begins with finding something other. The world outside of it is bad. And you have to find something in yourself that's good at what you're revolting against. And so you then promote values that allow you to exist. Things like um, he talks about humility or things about, you know, meekness, having a very easy kind of life becomes the raised up. And then everything that's supporting the outside system, that is evil, just inherently evil because that's antithetical to whatever they are. And so I'm wondering if the CRT stuff, even Marx, seems to be falling in a lot to this slave morality critique that Nietzsche's thrown out there saying it'll, cause he, he talks about this, the birth of slave morality is going to begin is once they find an outside force in the world, that's just evil, inherently evil. And then this internalized resentment to morality is what develops. Maybe that's, maybe they just don't have a positive view because inherent into their moral structures, just a negative view of the world. I, I think Nietzsche ta- calls it like a, like a perpetual skepticism of the external human condition. Well, right. And Josh, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Is there resentment? Does one have a sense that this is a movement based on resentment? <laughs> I mean, I would say so. Um, Seems like it. I, 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 I mean, I'm just thinking of specific examples. Like when you, when you say that, I'm thinking of specific examples of, uh, I mean, it, it's because it's not solely just that there needs to be a, uh, I guess retribution, right? So, or, or reparations is, is the current term really going around um, in terms of monetary reparations, 
in terms of, uh, you know, apologizing for your, you know, white guilt or ancestral guilt. Um, that, that I think that's part of it. But yeah, I, I think there, I think a lot of the motivation um, that that's driving the movement um, is born out of, out of resentment. And I think you see that um, through um, some of the different, different actions like in BLM, for example, um, and in, in different um, proponents, people who, who adhere to CRT. So yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty prevalent. So Jacob, how do we cut through that ask that like, okay, and I'll let you get that thought out, but I do want to throw this out there. How do we get to real racism then? Because we do, I know we're doing a lot of net critique of CRT, but let's just get this out there too. We do, we're, this is our podcast called Equal Justice. So we also want to say like, okay, what, what um, are we doing to promote to then be the alternative, something like critical race theory in promoting yeah. actual justice for people who, who truly have been marginalized in the culture, you know? Yeah. You know, first of, first of all, um, those who are Christians and listening to us would uh, recognize this um, episode in the book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar is given a vision of a colossal man um, made of different metals. And God is reminding him that these kingdoms have ending. They will end. A uh, new kingdom will come. And at the end, we see a rock that comes from untouched by man, hits the kingdom, and everlasting kingdom is established. But next thing that we see is King Nebuchadnezzar builds a colossal man completely made of gold. And that's the human tendency, where God says that these kingdoms are not going to last. The head was made of gold, not the whole body, when God gave the vision. But here is Nebuchadnezzar saying that, I want to build a kingdom that's going to last forever. A man completely made of gold. And I think that's what we do with human kingdoms. And that's what, no matter what we try to replace it with, if we are doing it with a mindset where we uh, question the structure without uh, uh, just uh, dismantling the structure fully uh, that has a transcendent truth, uh, and not directing it, which it should be directed to the right end. If we do that, we are basically standing against God and saying, as you said, Tony, that we want to be like God. We, our kingdom is going to last forever. And I think that's, uh, that's foolishness. At the end of the day, we know that that's not our mm -hmm. hope. Um, so that's what I just want to add to that. In terms of what we can do, uh, this is where, the, this is what I would add to it. And this is what I would love to see is that, first of all, we need to recognize that when it comes to individuals and groups, we wouldn't be able to completely dismantle or remove or discard uh, distinctions between people and groups. We need to respect that. We need to respect the fact that God is the one who is the author of cultures. God is the author of each of us. Uh, and in terms of he's honored uh, in the diversity that is there among people, and we need to recognize that. Now, having said that, when diversity, when it is not glued by something together, right, as people, especially in the national context, for American context, the idea of melting pot, the idea of everyone coming together and this melting and becoming Americans, um, I think we need to rethink that analogy, and this is what I want to propose. If you've ever been to an Indian restaurant, go, uh, if not, go there, uh, an authentic Indian restaurant and order for something called thali. 
Thali is basically, basically a big plate with small sections, small uh, bowls on it with different varieties of dishes. Now Nothing I'm hungry. <laughs> we can't go to any restaurants though, not in California at least. Nothing necessarily mixes, but they're all in this one plate. I'm, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't mix. We must, we should, we should sharpen each other and uh, you know, make each other better, share our cultural values, share our differences and everything uh, that we have collectively in our groups or individually developed. We should do that, but there has to be this one thing that glues us together. And my understanding is that it, we can do that by promoting the right ideas. One of which I always say is the idea of intrinsic human worth, of intrinsic human dignity of all individuals. Because we need to recognize that over the past decades, there have been a fight against this, this very idea in the academia. Where we are today is not, uh, 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 didn't just happen randomly. It happened over time where we actually got away from this idea that we all are created equal. Uh, you read the, the article by Steven Pinker, uh, The Stupidity of Dignity, right? Even, so what ha what's happening at the end of the day is that there is this notion of just dissolving all differences together. And philosophically, this and theologically, I see it more pantheistic in nature that the whole idea of oneism, monism, where we are hoping that everything is going to dissolve and become one, which is not going to happen, which is not what we're seeing in Revelation. At the end of the day, every nation, every tribe, every tongue that shows a distinction that is still maintained when we are together in the kingdom. And that distinction, so here on earth, we need to recognize and acknowledge that those differences are going to be maintained. And we need to be work, working towards promoting the good that is there in all groups of, among all individuals and how we can do that while keeping that, that big plate together. Right, you may not be able to dissolve everyone and mix everyone together. That's not going to multiculturalism in one sense has failed for this reason that there was no one glue. And in my opinion, the gospel ideas, the ideas like intrinsic dignity of individuals, the ideas like the, the foundations of love or love as the foundation of our engagement with each other, uh, that we all are fallen. We all are. It's not just the other who is oppressing me who is fallen. The one who is oppressed also needs the same kind of salvation that we are longing for. These are some of the ideas we need to be pushing in our culture, in academia, in church, in other places. And I think when we do that, we will initiate a process. Now, this is one thing we need to recognize. The culture in which we are right now, as you mentioned already, we have adopted this idea somehow consciously or unconsciously that end justifies the means. And that's a dangerous idea. We need to recognize as Christians, particularly that the process is as important as the end, right? We have to have that good balance of promoting goodness, truth, and beauty, even in our process, if we are hoping for goodness, truth, and beauty at the end. And if that's not happening, then we are basically uh, distancing ourselves from uh, promoting human flourishing at the end of the day. Now, Jacob, wouldn't, wouldn't the, the average social justice warrior, to put it that way, um, wouldn't they say, but look, we are uh, celebrating diversity, right? We're the ones who are pointing out all of these 
types of people who have been unloved over the years. Uh, homosexuals, lesbians, um, racial minorities. They've been unloved. And, mar you know, just uh, let's use the more substantive word than marginalized. They've been unloved. We're the ones pointing out that these people need to be loved better, right? Loved more correctly. So, um, so there does seem to be like some, something about pointing out that uh, celebrating diversity, right? That's the thing. As uh, what you're saying though, but that at the end of the day, what we don't know is what, maybe we say like, what would unify that diversity? And this is yeah. where there's an attempt to try and find something that might unify, unify all of these cultural and even personal diversities, these things. But this we don't know the, what it is. The whole idea of e pluribus unum, where do we get that from? The whole idea of university, where do we get that from? The whole idea, I mean, these are some of the values that we have always held throughout history and maintained. That's something we need to be fighting for. So right now we can all talk about diversity, maintaining diversity, but at the expense of unity, that which unifies us, gonna divide us even more. And one thing that I would say is that um, social justice warriors or whoever it may be who are saying that we are the ones, the champions of the oppressed, um, let me ask them to take a pause and look at human history, evaluate what Christianity has done around the world, how Christianity has even contributed to a place where we can actually be together, regardless of our differences, and value each other. An analysis of human history would make it very clear, even to an atheist. I mean, if you, Tom Holland, if you read his right. book. I was thinking I mean, exactly just, of what he yeah, said before. Just, just read his book. Black Lives Matter doesn't even get off the ground in a non-Christian context. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so I would say just have a look and uh, determine for yourself as to, are you the only lone voice fighting for these causes in this culture? You are not. Uh, so, and this is what I tell people who adopt cr uh, critical race theory without questioning is, is that there are different aspects to it that we do understand that, yes, it does connect with our Christian values. It does promote certain Christian values. The whole idea of understanding who the oppressor is, who is the oppressed, it's a good value. But let me ask you, why is it that we need to be adopting critical race theory to basically promote those ideas and values or hold those values and ideas? Christianity has always offered that. Christ has always offered that. And we have fought for millennia for those issues, those concerns that we've had. Well, and I, oh, go ahead, Josh. Well, okay, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be quick with my point. But just to piggyback off of what you guys were saying, um, the question, right, is what, what is it that creates unity? And what is, uh, you know, CRT's answer for that? I would say CRT's answer is uh, reformation of systems uh, and specifically of systems that oppress the victim. Uh, and if we just replace the oppressor and, uh, and we, we change that, uh, if we can somehow minimize the, the damage that they do to the victim in that oppressor-oppressy relationship, that's salvation in the, in the CRT model. But as, as Christians, I, I think we we have the answer to that. I, I don't think you can have unity without truth. And, and that's the problem of, of postmodernism is, is when you have 
different, um, th there's nothing, wh what is there to unify over if you, if you don't have a common ground in reality, if there, if there is no real uh, way that things are. And so that, that's where I think um, biblical, uh, uh, the person of Christ in the Bible really comes to play where it says, uh, full of grace and truth. Um, he is our salvation. Jesus, Jesus is our answer to, he is what unifies us as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and so that, that's, that's what we have to offer as Christians is we can say Jesus is the great and is the great unifier. Um, he unifies us with the father through the Holy spirit. Um, and, and so that is our source of salvation. But for CRT, I would say that just seems to be, uh, changing the system in which the oppressor can no longer be oppressed and and how that how how to go about that the methodology or um what's what, what's considered good for the um the victim that that's in the air because there is no grounding objective morality at least under most forms of, of crt that that i've been introduced to it seems it seems pretty rampant with postmodernism so Again, just to summarize, I think at the end of the day, in order to have unity, you do need truth. Well, Logan, that brings up a good point. Who knows what's best for the victim? Yeah. That's well, another I mean, way, question, right? Who knows? Who's the one to say, I know well, what's there, best for the oppressed group. Here it is. Yeah, yeah well, when you're looking at for a lone, lone voice, I think their, their ready-made answer is going to be something like, the victim knows what's best for the victim. And this is where you get this bizarre sort of um, ethnic Gnosticism, as I think Bodhi Bakum would call it. But viewpoint epistemology, I think, like not necessarily just, you know one-to-one -one correspondence between those two theories, but the idea that the individual has kind of the all-seeing eye on their own situation, and no one else could conceivably understand that. It becomes difficult, as you said, when you have a group of people. You know, who's the group's eye? You know, you can get to questions about Rousseau's, you know, will the people and these sorts of things which end up just totally falling apart because then you do have to say, okay, who's the one that's going to act on behalf of the people? Right. And then you just, you know, once you open that up, I am now the voice of the people. That has never, ever ended well. Uh, but, but I wanted to get back to Jacob's comment. And, it's, uh, and maybe this is just a, a conversation to have about sort of the historical situation of Christian philosophy. But I think a lot of the people would argue that the reason why they adopt critical race theory or because they think critical race theory is valuable is because they don't think within the Christian, tra tra maybe recent tradition, obviously in the historical tradition, it's been a big case, but questions about justice and social uh, views on how, how people should interact. They'll say, well, you know, our, our United States, as I read from the quotes from the Critical Race Theory book, right, America has, through its laws, created a white supremacist system and has kept it alive and well maybe out of direct view, but it's there and we need to figure out how to, critical race theory, figure out how to change that. And questions about how, how does Christianity do this? Questions about Christian social value, how to do this, has not been, I think, at the forefront of Christian, at least philosophical analysis at the popular level for, I think the recent, and this might just because my background in analytic Christian philosophy, the back, the, the recent fight was over, you know, the work in Plantinga and stuff like that, where they're trying to get off our, you know, are there like rational Christian, like rational religious beliefs? Is that even like a possibility to have a conversation about? So they had a very different project, which I think was necessary because now, you, you know, but they're responding to, again, the logical positivists and saying that there are things outside of the material world that can have truth value. So they're responding to something else and maybe throwing all those resources won one battle, but now introduced a new one. 
But I think that would be to answer Jacob's question. I think that's the shift they think is valuable. Now I think the question though is, okay, but practically it's super destructive. And that's why I wanted to ask Tony, do we, do we want to begin going over your six things yeah, now? Do I we do want to use that, that at a different time? I do want to do that. And uh, let me, let me address something you just said about planning as work and where, you know, planning in the seventies, eighties and nineties is trying to answer challenges from scientism, logical politics, uh, positivism, and later on Dawkins. And, you know, we talked about this yesterday, Logan, this idea of Francis Schaeffer's right. Where the church and theology, especially is always lagging behind um, the philosophy of the day, the philosophy of the day, we think right now is critical race theory. Although when you listen to certain uh, scholars, black scholars uh, like McWhorter and Lowry, a lot of this stuff has been sort of uh, evaluated and found wanting uh, like 30 years ago. But now, I mean, in McWhorter's, one of McWhorter's uh, uh, part of his analysis is the only reason you're sort of seeing this second sort of generation of critical race theory is because of social media and a handful of popular level authors and professors who just sort of re trying to update what was done in the 80s. But a lot of this stuff has been adjudicated and found wanting 40 years ago. But for the church, it's brand new. And like, oh my goodness, you know, this is, you know, we, we got to react to this. And it's like, it's already been reacted to. It's already been sort of, um, you know, left behind. But for us, it's like a big new thing. The same way we still have maybe people trying to respond to the logical positivists, although I think that ha they have been now fairly uh, thoroughly responded to. Uh, but yeah, let me, let me ask this question then, Tony, because this is the kind of question I've, I've been yeah. going back with a few friends on social media. It's also been questions I've been going you know, over the phone or even in person. What, what, what is it about the church now? This might be speculative. This might be direct human experience for each one of us. What is it about the church now that makes them wanting to jump on CRT versus when it was coming out and was the right new thing on the block? And, you know, you have, I mean, I'm reading through Hayek's The Social Mirage, The Mirage of Social Justice, sorry. And this is, you know, again, 30, 40, 50 years ago that they're like, there's just nothing here. Well, Why would we, like, is, we're using words. Yeah. We have no idea what they mean. He even says, like, the idea of social in front of justice, like the idea of right. social institutions, social structure has no reference. What are you talking about? There, there's nothing right. there. Right. So it's like, it was like, obliterated by some of these top, academics didn't really take hold of the church now it's like if you're not on board with critical race theory then, then what are you doing well i think i think mccorder is of course in part right that people just know about it now back in the 80s he's saying you know these things would get published in certain kinds of magazines that a handful of people would read and it was just hashed out amongst the illuminati in the academy <laughs> now it's like, you know, we're talking, like us four are talking about it, right? So, um, and Phil Vischer and everybody else who we mentioned in the past, who's just really, Phil, this is, Phil it looks, I'm sorry, Phil, I'm sorry, Phil Vischer, he's made so many good things for the church. Um, but, you know, um, but it's just, it's, so it, partly it's just that, right? It's just, it's just took about 40 years and now we have the technology so that people can talk about it. Um, I think the other thing though, and McWhorter also brings this up uh, in his interview with Jason Riley from, I believe, December 16. Um, pressure. Pressure. 
political pressure, social pressure. If you don't, somebody's going to not like you and they're going to call you names. So, oh, or, well, or even, even we're the I church. Mean, even we're going spo- further beyond that. I mean, or you might lose I mean, your well, not you can't. Yeah, you might lose your job. You can get kicked off a plane. Uh, I mean, well, also, cancel culture is going pretty far now. Okay, so leading up into the six points, and this I do want to make something. I was reading again Eric Fromm's book, who was the father of modern sociology. I mean, there's no critical race theory if you don't have guys like Eric Fromm. If Eric Fromm never existed or Max Weber, or guys like this, even though I don't know that half of the people who want to embrace critical race theory ever you know, know of who Eric Fromm and Max Weber and Herbert Marcuse and, and these guys were. Um, but Josh is right. I mean, you have a lot of people who want to embrace this who are in secular, the secular academy. Okay? Their jobs are on the line if they go against the grain, okay? Now with the old school modernist, you might've been considered weird by the biologist, the evolutionary biologist. You might've considered, be considered strange by the atheist philosopher, if you were a Christian theologian, philosopher, whatever, at the secular 20 years ago. But now you're considered- um, An outcast. Wicked. Now, like Joe Logan, you made the point last. Now there's the more the moral normativity comes in, right? You're not just weird or strange because you believe in these metaphysical realities like God and angels and demons and human souls. Now, um, you know, if you hold to those traditional that traditional Christian worldview, um, you're evil. You're wicked. It's time to get rid of you. Right. So I think a lot of guys and gals just say who have felt accepted in the academy because they're probably very smart and that's where they find their social comfort um, are willing to ditch their prior ecclesial commitments. To put it lightly, the ecclesial commitments become less important because they have gained acceptance in the academy. Now, that's an that's an that's an old narrative. We can go back to, you know, the sermons of the late of the early 20th century about the culture despisers, why Billy Graham said, I, I don't want to go to university. I just want to go preach the gospel and, and other guys like that. And why and how evangelicals have been trying to find that balancing point. But you got a theory out there now that's really going to put your ecclesial commitments, your commitments to God's church on the line and, and, and your own position. In, in the academy. And I think that's where it's just difficult for people. They don't have necessarily, to put it lightly, the, the guts to do that. Yeah. Well, and I think what makes it so, I don't know, And what's, what's problematic is, is, and I'm sorry, I'll go off in here. You know, this is, this is similar to having sort of then a, an elite class. You get sort of a classism in the church, right? Logan, you've talked about this. How, part of what we're trying to do is how do we connect the academy to the church, right? This is what we're yep. so hopeful for. But you get an elitism in the academy of Christian philosophers, theologians, whatever. And they're going to pronounce moral judgments. They're going to lob grenades from on high to the Am Aharitz, the, the folk Christians, you know, mm-hmm. the people who are in the National Mall on January 6th, the big dummies. And they're going to lob their grenades. 
those are just the folksy Christians, right? So now you yeah. have a classism, not unlike the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees who lived in Jerusalem, the cultured elite, and the people of the land, you know, who were maybe more willing to sort of uh, be pissed off at the Romans, <laughs> for lack yeah. of a better word, because they weren't so embedded. through it. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, because I think the question, though, that becomes important then is, is at what at what point is there disagreement, right? Because you, you talked about the, putting ecclesiastical commitments, ecclesial commitments on the line. The question then is, okay, where, what has CRT done or what does CRT provide that fundamentally clashes with ecclesial commitments? Like if it's just a methodological lens, right? And this is why I read the quotes directly from Cornell West and from the, uh, the introduction from the sort of conglomerate of, of editors is that it seems to be worldview building. It provides an alternative understanding of how law works. I mean, the Old Testament has a very direct and clear understanding of how law is to function. And then it says, okay, well, it's going to be in the service of some certain kinds of outcomes of what we think is human nature through sort of existential reflection. All of these points are now competing for like the Christian narrative. And I think this is where I'll get a conversation with people is I think it's very telling when you say, you ask them, do you believe people are fundamentally equal? And there's a hesitancy to say yes from the CRT side, not because they want to say they're racist or because they, they but they understand that there's a part of CRT which says certain things should be distributed according to other things than just fundamental human nature, right? We're equal because we all have certain economic relations or we all have certain not merit, but we have certain things that were given to us that should not have been given to us, right? The idea of chance, the human condition, being born. I mean, all these things start becoming, turning into questions about how are things distributed? How do we, how do we treat people unequally because it's just and it's right? And I think one of the things we should add to our discussion is that, that our listeners would hear us that when, when we say these things, this is not that we don't question the evil that might be there uh, that certain people would do, right? Um, or or uh, uh, there might be a need for us to rethink our system and improve it without dismantling it. Uh, it's not denial of racism anywhere. Racism does exist. And it's a sin that we need to be fighting and, and fighting well. Um, so, the problem is with CRT, as you said, you know, dismantling the whole system uh, that has produced much good, not just in the Western world, but around the world, um, though it had its own weaknesses. And that's what we are called to fight for today or fight against. Yeah, well, take the, take the term racism, right? I mean, I think there are really two competing definitions of racism. D'Angelo will bring this up. Um, I think uh, Michelle Alexander will bring this up in her book, The New Jim Crow. Uh, and you have kind of like the classical, I don't know, traditional definition of racism, which is the intention of one, the one person's intention to treat someone else differently based upon the race, right? As consequences, there's an intention there, there's consequences, right? 
The newer definition, though, isn't so much pegged to the individual mm. as it's sort of pegged to out there. Right? There are social institutions, of which they're not named. There are people, which are more so being named as symptoms, again, of, of, of an underlying system. But the system's never exposed. It's just out there in the world. There's this web of social features that's oppressing. And that's what racism truly is. It's not the individuals because they're products of their environment, mm-hmm. right? Of these environmental forces. And so you have now competed. And again, this goes back to what I was talking about, Tony. It seems like there's competition of these ecclesial commitments. When Paul is writing letters to the churches, he's not saying, I know that out there in the world, there's these laws that are making you hate your neighbor, mm-hmm. right? These sort of, these objects just, they don't appear to exist. Now he does talk about, you know, principalities of powers and so on and so forth, of which they're fighting against, but the, the moral impetus is on the individual to live out God's will through the help of the Holy Spirit. So it's a very, indi- so yeah. what I'm trying to get, I guess, yeah. is that there's two very different views of racism mm-hmm. and they're not compatible. And that brings up the whole point about how we are morally transformed or how we are transformed into, into better or more moral creatures. Like, is it through our, pers- our, in- our interaction with the Holy Spirit, with an actual supernet, the, the God of the universe? Or is it through going out and changing institutions? I mean, There's a reason it could be a little bit of both, I suppose. But yeah. if you're going to say yeah. one to the expense of the other, or if I, I, would, I would at least want to say, uh, to err on the side of the caution, that I hope your emphasis is first on how to be changed through your personal uh, and corporate relationship with Jesus Christ, as opposed to going out there and being a political activist to change the social uh, material conditions around you in the hopes that that will make you a better person. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think, well, what becomes difficult though is like, so when you say changing, you know, changing institution or changing the individual. I mean, what do you mean by when you say you need to change an institution? Like, oh, we'll create different laws. Well, that's the entire argument of the new Jim Crow is that we could create laws that we believe are injustice, but the impact is just racist. So the the question is, even if you change institutions, what I think at least CRT has to at least admit is that at the end of the day, those forces can be changed by the individuals which man them. Nietzsche goes over that. I mean, it's, it's just like a broad understanding that if you know, the origin of a law does not necessarily correlate to how it's functioned and how it's issued out. And it, it, without being guided by an individual, and this is why judge, like, like if you just like research like the history of why judges are the way they are and the persona that they have and this idea that they even would, would wear robes and so on and so forth. There's like a history that you could have all the right laws, you bring the wrong person in, all those laws are now in place to kind of enact whatever abuse the individual who takes the, you know, the throne does. So it comes down again to, if you just change, say if you were successful in changing all the institutions, but you didn't change a single person, you're going to be in the exact same place, which is what you know, Michelle Alexander is getting at with. Now, I'm going to disagree. I don't know if like, the war on drugs was inherently designed to go after the black community. I don't know if that's clear. I don't know enough on that. But if we just allow that, yeah, we could pass laws on just prosecuting drugs if put in the wrong hands are just as bad as maybe good laws about it, drug laws that we could have. I don't know. You end up getting back to the individual, I think, if you pursue that line of reasoning all the way to its end. 
I think people are passionate about these things because they, and you're right, Logan, um, they have seen the outworking of evil hearts, right? It's not the outworking of evil laws. You can be racist in the presence of just laws. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and much of what we have today is just law. And over 90%, I would say, is drawn out of, if we see uh, the law of the land here in the Western world is drawn out of the scriptures. So I would ask a person who is adopting CRT, what are some of the laws that you want to change? Right. And what's the motivation behind that? Uh, Is it a moral issue or is it an issue of structure? Is it an issue of or something else, right? And work with that. Uh, but whereas when we are not talking about, if we are talking about replacing the whole system and subverting it, uh, that's questionable. But yeah, this fact of that we need to be seeing the, again, I'm saying the same thing, which, which is being questioned now, which is a fact that the evil rests in our heart. Sin is in us. We are the ones who could be racist in the presence of just law. And that's what a Christian, that's what gospel is. God gives us a law to keep it and we don't keep it. Therefore, Jesus. Well, and, and, and black uh, scholars, uh, the ones that we continue to mention, and Jason Riley is another one that we haven't mentioned as much. You know, uh, Coleman Hughes, I think they, you know, I've heard them in various ways point out this idea of, you know, none of critical race theory is actually going to lead to a future solution for those black communities that continue to hurt and struggle with poverty and bad schooling and stuff. You know, there's already a rejection that this is going to lead to any future good. And, you know, it also, and this is where I would really warn, I trying to warn again, white heterosexual males who are evangelicals who want to embrace this, are we, are we really treating black people as people on this theory? Or are we treating them as like helpless children? Because Logan mentioned the victim epistemology. Now, I, I haven't read a lot on this, but I mean, would we take a, a woman, would we take a 12-year-old girl who's been sexually abused her whole life and uh, say that she's got the right idea about sexuality. You know, I, I don't know. Would we take, would we just take victims and say that they have some kind of special knowledge that we don't have? They have, they have experiences, but the experiences are distorted. I mean, would I say as a victim of sin that I know what to do about sin or do I have to go to revelation? Uh, well, in the Bible and the person of Christ to find out what, what, uh, what I should do with that. Because obviously as a victim of sin and my own will and, and, and external forces, my understanding is distorted. It seems to me that we, we, you know, that you might be able to understand, you want to understand the victim better. You want to understand their experiences, but that doesn't mean that they have the answers. So yeah. It doesn't mean they're the authority on, on, uh, on, on the answer to their problem. Yeah. I mean, I think as Christians, that's what we, we need to hold to is that we often don't. We, we need, uh, that, that's one of the biggest reasons why we need Jesus. He, he um, and for many reasons, but um, he, <laughs> he, he's the source, God is the source of all authority. Um, 
and so I, I think when it comes to especially problems of sin, moral moral issues, right, within our own character development, within the sanctification process, um, your source of salvation or your source of and your source of authority has to be placed in something transcendent as, as a Christian. That, that's what we believe in. It, it can't come from ourselves. And, and like you said earlier, Tony, like that was like the first great sin is that, you know, we look inward to say, oh, I'm God. I, I'm the solution. I'm the answer to my own problems. Um, I, I know what's best for me. And, and that's, just, that's just a lie. That's just not true. Um, now, in certain, in certain circumstances, right, like there, there's an element of truth to it. We can, we can come up, we're, we're, sa- we're savvy, right? We can come up with, uh, 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 you know, these, these temporary solutions to our, our everyday issues. We can, we're like, oh, okay, my stomach's hurting. All right, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to go get a pill at, uh, you know, some Tums or something to, to go fix that. Like, I don't need to go in prayer for that or I don't need God for that. And, and I think that, but that's, that's the, the insidious part of it is you go little by little. Oh, I, I don't need God for this. I don't need God for this. I can construct this whole life for myself outside of God. That, that's, that, that's the tower of Babel. That, that's the great, mm. the great sin. And so, the, I, and I think that is exactly why um, CRT is so dangerous because it places the authority and, um, uh, for those answers within the person of the victim they're the one who has epistemic access to um uh what it's even like to what what the problem even is what it's even like to be in that condition um let alone the solution like reparations or what have you oh and i'll give you a perfect example of this um in you know in the black community um there's a lot of talk about uh, reparations for different sins and we can get i mean there's a whole lot of premises you have to question there like are you even the personal victim of it versus your ancestors and other things like that but e- even assuming um that a, a specific community is the victim um of a specific sin the question is how do you go about um resolving that conflict or addressing that wound and that's very important. It's, it's not even just because we don't want to be dismissed. And this is going back to what you were saying, Jacob. We're not we're not dismissing that there it, there is real racism. There is uh, um, real examples of oppression in reality. But we're, what we're saying is that the source of um, of hope for those real issues mm-hmm. lies outside the um, the doesn't lie within any one person, but lies within the transcendent, lies within Jesus Christ himself. And as a Christian, I think we have to hold to that. Yeah, and we should be very careful as Christians that we don't completely discard or discount um, lived experiences of people. People do have those, and we all do, right? Mm -hmm. We all engage in meaning-making process, but not necessarily truth-making process. You know, truth stands regardless of, and my own experiences does not define truth. Truth must inform my experiences. And that shift has to happen in our culture as well. So a a group of people can create their own experiences uh, and the other group would have different experiences. What they should be doing is that they should, in the midst of that, ask, does my understanding of our lived experiences conform to the biblical understanding of what it should be? And I think when we have that as a center point, a point to aim at and bring these experiences together, right? That's the only solution. And that's where reconciliation happened. That's where forgiveness happened. And that's where gospel takes its root. And I think 
I personally, as someone who comes from a different culture, there is there can be a lot of things I can listen to and question and a lot of a reaction that I can have. But there's one thing I can say. The process in which we were on that was bringing about that that's been questioning the evil in our culture in our society um, as we were progressing uh, what we have done with critical race theory and critical theory is that we have in my analysis in my understanding it's an attempt to take us back to a place where we all started uh, in terms of dividing people on the basis of their the color of their skin on the basis of their experiences whereas not offering as to what is it that we should that should bring all of us together right and i personally believe as a christian as someone who believes in it truly and gospel is the only solution right gospel is the only standard by which we can bring these experiences different experiences yes and sometimes not so good experiences but conform it to the standard that gospel offers uh, and if we can if we are able to remove that if we remove gospel out of the picture and trust on our lived experiences as the source of truth uh, it's only going to divide us even more you know, let me continue that thought because, you know, some people who watch this podcast um, are going to see, especially uh, Josh, Logan, and I, well, you guys are just, I mean, and this is, is going to come because, again, I think this is more of a, as much a psychological mechanism as it is an actual academic theory. But it's going to come that, well, you know, you guys are just angry white guys who want to continue to exert dominance over people who maybe look like more like Jacob. And of, of course, I think all of us are at the point where we'll just um, ignore that, you know. Um, <clears throat> but um, I think Jacob's right. This is a tool uh, for division. It's, a mech it's, it's something that will only divide at the end and unlike those who might challenge uh, me on this and say that i just want to exert dominance my one great um i don't know if i want to say fear but fear about critical race theory has been from the beginning this that it has the potential to end real friendships between people uh to include spousal relationships potentially that's it that's ultimately when i get down to the bottom of it it really really bothers me that people who otherwise are good friends close friends potentially even a man and a woman who just happen to be different uh races if you want to use the term races but one's black one's white one's Mexican, one's white, whatever, that their relationship will end because of this. And I think that is just, that's evil. I think that's evil. So <clears throat> we wanted to get to these six points, Logan. Maybe this would be the time because these are in part rhetorical. They're meant to be rhetorical. We're not actually advocating this, right? 
but um, seems to me that one could make a case for all any of these six points if you really wanted to give yourself over to critical race theory and put it into action. So I don't know if you guys, Sorry. yeah. I'll just add to this and uh, to our listeners, uh, whoever it may be. And this is not, you talk about friendship and this friendship is not being affected only between people of races. Um, right, uh, right. I can share this. Not across uh, racial lines, it's true. It, it, here, standing for and fighting for the truth, you know, uh, we have lost friends who have started keeping distance from us, right? Uh, so it's not about color particularly, right? It's, it's about ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think at the end of the day, as Christians, we should be. And this is where I find my solace and something that I learned from a good friend of mine. There comes a time for a Christian to ask what I'm offering. Is it to maintain my friendship or do I care for my friend? A distinction between friendship and friend. The ideal would be to have both. But in the realms of ideas, in the realms of where ideas clash, a Christian is brought to a place where he or she will have to ask, do I value my friendship more than my friend? Or do I value my friend more than my friendship? And, and the, that's and a question, question every parent has to ask with regards to their child as well. You know, um, well, and this is, yeah. I think I really like what you, you brought up, Tony, about this idea of, and this goes, again, with Jacob, like the, why friendships are ending on this. I mean, yes, in my life, I've had several friendships end on issues very related to this. And we, you know, we have to ask the question, what is this victim mentality doing? It's not, I mean, we could have, right, the, I, the conflict at the theoretical level. You know, part of the theoretical conflict, I think, is to say it's not just a theory. CRT is not just theory. CRT scholars don't view what they're doing just as theory. They're very explicit. Maybe we need, in some of our further um, podcasts, we can take a little deeper dive into some of these CRT scholars. But what ends up happening is you have to, well, you have to ask, what, what, is, what is the value? This is more of a Nietzsche way of saying, what is the value of the morals of victimhood? Now, the reason why I'm like referring to Nietzsche on this is so that at least the audience knows this. I'm not just reading Christian scholars who support our view. Nietzsche is not a friend of Christianity by any stretch of the imagination. He's very anti-Christian and from the ground up. But he has an insight where he says, okay, but we need to be able to at least look at certain moral values and ask, but what's, what's, what, what, um, what do they do for the person, right? And when you look at things like victim mentality, right? I have never read a, a book on psychology. If it's Freud, if it's Horni, if it's, you know, any of these other you know, modern, you know, psychologists you kind of pick up as you're in, in a, waiting in a doctor's office or something that say, you know what, the one way you need to change your life and become a better person, just blame everyone else for your problems. Or at least realize that all of your faults are someone else's burden. No one has ever said that. And actually, I read uh, oh, his name, he's case on my, it's somewhere in here in this book. There's like extreme responsibility or something. It was by a Navy SEAL. I don't remember. Oh, I know what the book is um, talking about. Extreme ownership or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like yeah, extreme ownership. Yeah. It was interesting because he even makes the arguments like, just take responsibility, even if it's not your fault, you'll tend to do better in the long run. But what's interesting is, is because he's looking at what does it do for an individual in their like human growth or whatever, like, you know, like as a person being able to take on responsibility and accountability and so, so on and so forth. And it becomes more of a like friendship infuriating kind of thing where I have to ask questions. I got a, got a debate with a friend about affirmative action. And I was like, you know, the, the problem I have with affirmative action is I, it's hard to convince myself 
to adopt it personally. Like there, I don't see how I would look at an individual and say, I'm going to value you, give you preferences, like treat you better or treat you less of a person depending upon your race. I just don't see that being fair. I wouldn't want someone to be, oh, you're white here. I'm going to treat you better. It, it kind of robs me of, no, I've actually done things that's valuable, I think. And I would like to be responded to on those standards. I have a problem trying to do that to my friends. And there's a fight. And, oh, we need you to, to not your friends and people you don't know. And so it becomes, again, at this very fundamental level of, of human existence and living out your life, you run into these problems where you're like, I can't accept treating my friends differently just because I raised. I'm not going to. Sorry, Jacob, I'm not going to cheat you any better than, uh, than Tony because, you know, because the color of your skin, like, that's just, what? As Christians, we're not called to do that. Yeah. You know? Explicitly, Paul, I mean, I think Paul, like, every other problem was based on, you know, don't treat the rich with preference. Don't cheat the Jews with preference. You know, dine with the Gentiles just as much as you are with the Jews, Peter, like, kind of thing. I don't know. No, that's good. That's good. Um, well, the <clears throat> the alternative that we thought, or that I thought, if um, one were to go to the criti- the critical race theory route, um, and say, well, you know, I think these folks have it right. There needs to be these fundamental changes to the system. Um, the question is. Uh, and, you know, I'm sort of speaking to maybe the white, heterosexual, male, evangelical Christian who finds himself um, in the privileged position, because he is, um, and really wants to put into practice anti-racism, to use maybe Kendi's term, uh, because he wants to see the real societal change that's being called for in the streets. Okay, so like what, what would we expect that person to actually do if you were going to say, and let this, as Francis of Assisi once said, and let it begin with me, right? Let, let the revolution uh, begin with me. So I'm a, I'm a white heterosexual male evangelical Christian, let the critical race theory revolution begin with me. And I, th- I think you could make a case that these are, there's, these are six things that somebody should do um, if they are that person who wants to advocate for critical race theory. The first one is, if you are a white heterosexual Christian- Qualify that these are not the things that we are suggesting no we don't (laughs) that's right i thought i said that we don't actually believe these unless we were unless we were fully committed to the theory i think and then we did say something like and let this theory begin with me let it let me be the one to to, to first put it into practice right you know we don't want to cut cut this section and then post it saying that this is what we are advocating (laughs) right the Nazi can natural again but, CRT. Exactly. So let's let's I'm just again, so we're we're just speculating, right? What would it be like if uh somebody really took this stuff seriously? And the first thing I came up with, guys, was if you are a white evan white heterosexual male, evangelical Christian, and you're in a position of leadership, you are a university president or a seminary president, 
CEO of a business, you know, pick the institution you're over. You should, because it's possible, if not likely, that the only reason you are that president of that university or company is because you're a white heterosexual male. So if you want critical theory to begin with you, you need to quit your job immediately. And you need to find the next in the chain of command there and in whatever institute, you need to find the next person of color and implement them in as the new, to take over your position. They, you need to find the next uh, brown or black body and make them the new president or, you know, at least get, you know, get everybody else on board to make them the new president or uh, of the institution that you run. And then you need to go find some other job. What if someone would question um, based on D'Angelo's uh, recommendation that they are keeping their privileged position uh, in these institutions because they are bringing about policies and uh, action supporting CRT from their privileged position? Can they do that? Well, that, well, that is D'Angelo's defense and most of these people's defense. Well, I'm going to use my privilege for good. But for good, yeah. They're, they're, gonna, they're using the ring of Sauron. <laughs> we, we'll do it right this time. How can they do that when they don't have uh, uh, the knowledge that they yeah. are not, the, the race that they are not part of? How can they bring about any change? Well, they're hoping to change. This is D'Angelo, again, just to be clear. I don't, you know, we can talk. I don't know. The other scholars, I'm not entirely sure. They're nuanced. D'Angelo is going to say, well, she's helping white people specifically. She's not so much interested in trying to reform the black community or brown community or any other community, except she says, I want to use my white privilege to help other white people see that they're privileged and should not live like that. And here's one way, circular, and here's one way you can empower somebody, give them your job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean... You know, that's what D'Angelo, I mean, honestly, that's, well, the, here's, here's that's the old do as I say, don't do as I do. I mean, we heard yeah. that in the military all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, do, it as, do as I say, don't do as I do, because I'm not actually, I'm exempt, I'm just exempting myself. Yeah. That's just crap. Yeah. So. Well, it seems like, because then, well, well yeah, because the argument would be like, okay, so it's almost like white privilege has to exist mm -hmm. for D'Angelo to make sense, right? Because the only reason she has a voice that's important, according to her view, is because of white privilege. What if she gave up white privilege for some privilege someone else and she wouldn't have the authority to speak on the issues to help other white people? So it's this weird, like whatever you do, mm -hmm. it, it, it's not gonna work out unless you just kind of, I kind of ad hoc justify it. Oh, yeah, I'm bringing it up to help. Somewhere, somewhere, I'm speculative, I don't know the woman, but Books pop, I bet somewhere in her thinking, she realized she just got herself into a trap and she needed a cop out. She realized, I, I need a way out of this. And, and could it be that this is a motivation for, could it be that this is a motivation for people in institution, educational institution, and even in churches to basically push this idea uh, through because they want to keep their jobs? And, well, they're, argue, oh, and they're arguing that, oh, we, I want to keep my job. I'm going to keep my position, but see, I'm making changes. 
you know, we give people in but, some ways too much credit, don't we? Like, oh, they're like they're pure moral agents. Come on. People are people. They're trying to just keep their jobs at the end of the day. Yeah. Also, but here's also what I guess one legitimate response I would think maybe is that, and this is just something I found, you know, I, I found when I was studying through philosophy in undergrad and graduate level, it was always like these one-liners in a, in a book I was reading theory. I'm like, wow, that was like a really insightful piece. And it was uh, Aristotle. He was like critiquing other moral theories. And he was just like, just look at the guy living that life and say, do I want to live like that? And if your answer is no, then his moral theory is probably not going to be helpful. Like he just like is, is very grounded <laughs> in human experience. I thought that was super insightful. I think what has happened to like the ethics departments, I was talking to Moreland about this. He kind of, he laughed it off. It's, it's not like off as far as not important. He just laughed like, yeah, that's probably closer to the truth than, than most are recognizing. I think ethics has turned into less about that. Like let's find a moral theory that helps people. And instead let's find a moral theory that lets me do what I want. And if you'll like justified in doing it, Yep. Because we're, not, we're no longer testing moral theories like we used to. It was like, wow, you're telling, you know, and this might go back to the, maybe this is why it's so, we're so experience oriented now. Is if you don't have experience, you don't have nothing to say. It's because we'll say things like, oh, here's how you help someone who's dealing with depression. But then you ask, okay, but has it actually helped anybody? Yeah. Right? They're like, well, have I don't you know. Actually, have, you, have you actualized it? You yeah, could, or, like, have you helped anyone? Robin, you could actualize Robin D'Angelo's theory if you're a university president and you actually give your position over to the next person of color beneath you, because now they're the president, they get the benefits of being the president. The president actually helps someone the according to your theory. Yeah. The president's decision-making power. There you Would go. Would Biden let Kamala Harris take, you know, reverse the position? There you go, Joe Biden. Well, that's yeah. coming anyway. Right? You shouldn't be impeached. <laughs> you should just resign. That's coming anyway. <laughs> That Let's might happen. That so don't happen. don't wish for that one. That one might actually yeah, happen. <laughs> He's going out anyways, make it mo most politically now, here's aligned. A, here's, a, here's, a second, here's a second way that the white heterosexual male who embraces critical race theory could actualize the theory. Start your own personal project of reparations. Give, yeah. make, programmatically... Don't wait for the government to give reparations. You go and start giving reparations to black people. You can do the research until the point where you are in a, I would say, at a point of financial instability yourself. That might yeah, be especially since the since especially since the financial stability that you have is due to your privilege and not because you you know earned it. Yeah, or, that's across the board. You know. we are, yeah, that's yeah, the and, and we are not saying that you start a trust or a nonprofit where no. you get tax exemption. That's not what we're talking no. about, right? <laughs> Collect donations and then donate yeah. other people's money. No, donate Gotta your own. <laughs> You're the one who's contributed to the problem, so you have to contribute to the solution. I think they would get on board with that, right? Yeah. At least that line well, right. there was actually there was I forgot they had like a day where on Venmo they they Venmoed like fifty like they said like Venmo fifty bucks to your black friend. There was an actual thing and people actually did it. So which it's, is a it's not some of the stuff symbolic. We're about we don't want sim symbolism. Off. We want real activism. You got to get <laughs> yourself into a position of where you are on the brink of financial collapse. Otherwise, it don't it doesn't count. And what I'm trying to highlight here, guys, and I think we all would agree. Let's go this route. What, what you will see is the end of, the, the end of grace. This is, this is going to be a graceless thing, man, if we accept it. Because like, oh, yeah, it's all, yeah, it's, you, could, you, owe, you owe the person. Yeah, there's no, yeah it's not about grace. <laughs> that you oppress them. Yeah. Or you contributed to a system of oppression, more specifically. 
So and you owe you money and thankfulness. I mean, once thankfulness is gone, I mean, there's not a lot of hope for society. Mm. The third one's even tougher. And it is the thing that scares me because I've seen Keep up in it, Tony. Well, because I've seen people writing about this, not in the scholarly, but on uh, at the popular level, that people who are in biracial marriages should end their marriages. I've seen articles on this because the yeah. white person in the marriage, be it the woman, the, the, the wife or the husband, are implicitly in a dynamic of oppressor, oppre uh, uh, oppressor oppressed. Yeah. Why not end well, the marriage then? Why, why, why be in that position? You should get divorced. Well, you, if you use your privilege, then you could help your, your spouse, right? Is that, is that the you, defense? You're, carry, you're kind of carrying them on your back? you know when you are at the point of sort of being enlightened or not? I mean, at least get yeah. divorced for a while or separate yeah. for a while. Because until you are fully enlightened about critical, you may be yeah. implicitly oh. oppressing your spouse. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what the, the implicit bias, yeah, the whole argument. Anyway, just because you're white, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and I think this is, you know, a good part to have that conversation where, you know, you have, and I know that the CRT defense is the only scholarly defense. So we never said that. I mean, sure. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm reading through these books. There's not a lot of, here's what you need to do. They, and they're very clear. I mean, Michelle Alexander, I don't know how to solve this problem. I'm just going to elucidate the problem. Yeah, Bianjo does the same thing. You know, all the, all the, a lot of these critical theorists, here's the problem. They don't really point to a solution. But I think what you have to ask those, okay, but if you're saying certain things, what is the natural consequence? When you say society's divided up into two segments, the oppressed or the oppressor, here's where all the oppressed are, here's where all the oppressors at. Why does it not apply to marriage? Like what, I mean, I think maybe that's the pushback you give CRT scholars is, okay, what in your theory would say, you know, we actually don't say get a divorce. Well, you, okay, wh where in your theory does it, would it say that, right? And it might be, you know, kind of prove, prove your own innocent situation, but you have to look at the practical implications when you say all of society is this and that. Why does families not exist in all of society? Something that I'll add to this, um, maybe not directly connected, but a question that people here in the West should be asking, and this could be a topic for someone who wants to do a dissertation on this. Um, let's ask um, the outcome of CRT also in terms of biracial children. What is it that we are offering them? A case study that someone can do is uh, people called Anglo-Indians in India. And when the British came, they had children with Indian, you know, uh, they had one of the parents, Indian parents and a, a white British parent. And you just have to study the plight of Anglo-Indians as to how they find it difficult to be accepted within the Indian culture, at the same time being accepted by the British and how they are trying to live out their life in between cultures. And that, I'm not saying that that's not doable. It's not beautiful or anything valuable. They are. But in terms of their appeal to privileges in the society, the tension that is there, if we are not playing on the equal ground in terms of uh, understanding the equal worth of all individuals regarding of what race you are in, we can actually create a subsect uh, as uh, you know, uh, parents who are biracial and having children 
as to how does then CRT informs that. We should be asking that very question as well, which I don't think anyone is. Anyone is asking that question as to how, what kind of uh, outcome CRT would have for a child who is left with no choice, right, for future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost seems like the natural outcome of that under CRT would be to uh, adore and idolize one parent and to resent and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the other. <laughs> I mean, this, this, whoever the oppressor is and whoever the, the, the victim is, you know, this is just, happening though, we're... Josh, I think this is actually happening. I, 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 I guarantee you it's happening in families where you have a biracial family and the children and, and kids are starting to think bad about the white parent because that's what they're being told, right? At the popular level, at the, le- at the, the street level, right? The street level, that's what's happening. I, I'll give you a case, uh, I mean, hypothetical here. Uh, a black father or, and a white mother, and the child looks white, right? And the child goes out, who's been raised in a family that honors all races and all cultures and everything is raised biblically and to respect all but goes out and is accused of being racist because he, the child looks uh, white. Think about that, you know, all because the person looks white, but is born and raised in a biracial family, uh, is accused when he goes out of being racist, all because this person looks white. These are some of the consequences or outcomes of questioning an individual, not on the basis of their character, but on the basis of their skin color. Yeah. Well, so, think- um, yeah, let me, let me play devil's advocate real quick, just for some of the, the listeners. What, what if instead we say, okay, okay, I, I get what you're saying. Um, maybe there's some extreme forms of CRT, and maybe it's even the scholarly work of CRT that uh, happens to say, um, if, if there is a white person that they have this ancestral guilt and all this, but, but I'm, and especially in the church maybe, um, but I'm, I'm not saying that. Simply what I'm saying is that um, there happens to be uh, uh, victimization currently of a, a certain people group, in this case, black people, and, um, and that white people, um, even though it might not be inherent to their, um, their, their skin color or their genetics, they just by nature, because they're um, part of a uh, group of people in modern day society who are privileged because of the um, cultural access uh, that they have and, and the benefits that they have in society, um, therefore they need to uh, share that in some way. And it doesn't mean that they have to harm themselves or uh, financially or otherwise, but um, the best or most appropriate response is to uh, at least um, help the poor specifically of the person that um, that is negatively being affected in this system that they're benefiting from. Yeah, okay. I, so, so, I don't see a problem with that. So in this gonna, case... Are going to enforce yeah. it through, through government, though? I think that's the issue. Well, I think even to, in, in CRT defense, a lot of the times what they will say is that it's not necessarily coherent with some of the other statements, but, but give them the benefit of the doubt that they'll say it. So they'll go, okay, it's not... 
when they talk about race, so D'Angelo will talk about how race is just a social construct, you know, black and white and those sorts of things. It's just, there's no biological evidence of race. And so, and, and people try to, you know, historically they try to use biology to justify certain discrimination through race. And then, but what they'll, they'll pin onto is, 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 is uh, like things like whiteness or things like um, white supremacy are not necessarily attached to race. They're attached to certain ideologies that are probably mm -hmm. found in certain races. So things like individualism, things like merit, things like accountability become, or, or rather not accountability, responsibility. Everything that was on that poster yeah. that was put up at the... Exactly, exactly. They're like, where did this come from? Punctuality. If you're reading, yeah, if you're reading through some of the scholarship, it makes sense because that's what they, that's their list. Um, so that would be the, some of their defense would be, well, actually, we're not referring to race. You kind of picked this up. Now, what's hard is because a lot of these same people will then fight for things like affirmative action, which is not an ideological litmus test. When you say, please specify what you believe in, individuals and merit, it's please denote your race, you know. So, it, so that's where I think it becomes difficult where, okay, so, I, so race is now a reflection of ideology. So, so, so anyways, just to play devil's advocate, I think that's what a CRT scholar could say is, well, we're not talking about race, we're talking about ideology. Right, Jacob, you wanted to say something. So my tension is I'm, I'm trying to look at from a practical perspective, okay, uh, one of the questions that would come is that what, okay, if, if race is seen purely as a construct, right? I mean, someone who holds to a CRT position would have to appeal to that. Um, what is it that stops uh, a person of certain race from uh, migrating into another race? Right? That's what I'm going to do. That's a great question. Yeah. Oh, that was one of your other ones, wasn't it? One of the other six. Like what, or, or what, like if, what if I decide like, and, and especially with the whole, um, you know, gender fluidity thing, like what, what about, and you're actually seeing jokes about this on YouTube. Now, if you look on YouTube, I've seen several of these where it's like, it was a, the last one I saw was a um, black guy who, and it was a parody, but he was identifying as a 35 year old uh, white guy named Jerry or something like that. And, and it was like, and, and he does like all the cultural stuff associated with like what that might look like with that, with that uh, stereotype or that, uh, that trope. Um, but uh, yeah, it, what, what's preventing, what's preventing people from, from just identifying as uh, a different race, especially if it's a social construct. You know, and I think that there are a lot of uh, like boundaries being created or, people restrict people on the basis of some idea that they have in their mind, right? That people can't actually cross into another race. Uh, whereas there is no standard or foundation being provided as to, or direction being provided in terms of as to, or reason being provided in terms of why that cannot be done. Because if we are allowing for race to be a social construct, which it is, then in that case, we have to thereby naturally allow for people to then uh, sort of adopt certain criteria that would allow them to actually transfer onto or translate into a different race. Right, which would be an easy solution for some of us to get out of our current predicament. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that makes it very interesting because then now you're seeing that identity now is no longer in what you are, but 
what you've come to believe. Well, and, and, and you're right, Logan. We, you know, we almost, I'm sorry, we almost, almost um, unconsciously, subconsciously, not unconsciously, subconsciously. We'll have to knock you out first, Tony. Flipped into talking about race in the traditional way. See, this is why it's also such a tricky um, object to get a hold of because, again, we have to remember, and this, this is more, I'm going to skip to this sixth point and then maybe we'll wrap it up with the fifth point here of, you know, again, the critical race theorist is saying there's, it's not white people, it's whiteness, right? It's the abstract object known as whiteness that bears certain properties, you know, uh, believing a nuclear family is, is a God-ordained structure. Uh, everything, self-sufficiency, as Willie James Jennings said, self-sufficiency is a property of whiteness. You know, you got to go against that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think on that, on that poster that they put up in the Smithsonian, punctuality was, was an aspect of whiteness. Well, because we know what it's like in Southern Europe. Uh, the the darker you get, the less on time you are. Um, but you know, so, so it is Tony, the, yeah, yeah. Can I add this? So so right. here, here where where the tension is, right? Uh, some would claim that as a person of color, a brown person, uh, I'm participating in that whiteness, right? right. You can I can I can do this yeah. one way. It's one di one directional. I can participate in whiteness, whereas you, as a white person, can't participate in my brownness. You mean I can't? Oh, you know what? I That's actually late for yeah, my I appointments. An asymmetrical kind of. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Right. So, so my, my tension is there. And also when we're talking about this whole idea of, uh, um, you know, race being construct and race has cultural products. Now, some people have set boundaries around race, even though it's a construct and you should be able to actually jump onto another race if it's a construct, if it's merely about how I think and the cultural products. Yeah. Why do I restrict a white person from uh, braiding their hair, for example. Yeah, who has why, that why authority? I, yeah, who has yeah, the authority to decide which co social constructs somebody can have or not? And why can I actually, you know, I mean, the, then we have to question the whole idea of, you know, can you, the whole idea of cultural appropriation. Is it, is it even valid? to question someone adopting a different culture and wanting to look like other culture or other race. Why are we setting those boundaries if race is a construct? Yeah, it, it doesn't seem like you can logically hold to both race being a social construct and to appropriation of uh, uh, racial identity. That, that, it, that seems like a direct contradiction. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I, I think it goes to the problem of just social constructivism in general. You know, you, first define a society I mean or a culture you know and it, there's no clear demarcation I mean I had a friend text me he's like someone was accusing me of white culture Do you know what white culture is? I said no have them define it he's like they won't they want me to define it because I'm a white person I was like well <laughs> what are they are they black tell them to define black culture for me it's like no one knows what any of these are you know well, is you black know, culture the same for people living in South Africa for the United States Canada Mexico I mean okay so like is it American black culture? Is it, you know, well, that's, culture, like Louisiana that's South? I mean, like you have like yeah, right. cultures. You can't arbitrarily like this is it. 
Because yeah, I don't know if it was in the Cartagena uh, essay where it's it said something about ethnicity cannot be um, sort of um, the object in view here. Because one of the things that I think uh, white people in America, white Europe, people of European descent in America, forget the skin, the, the level of melanin, people of European descent, and this is happening with Mexican-Americans as well. And we know the tragedy that this happened with black Americans. We know that. That's what slavery did. It took people not just away from their families, but it displaced them from their home of origins and their ethnic cultures, right? Yes. And where, how, the way that happened for white uh, uh, Europeans coming to America is just over time, you, you lose your traditions. You lose your traditions. I'm half Italian. My mother's 100% Italian. What do I do that is uniquely Italian in my life? I yeah. put up a nativity set at Christmas. That's an Italian tradition. That's about it. It's getting, you know, that's about it. Yeah. You got some pretty strong facial expressions. Is it, I don't know if that counts. You got to get the hands going too. Well, is that I, opinions? I have opinions that are pretty I mean, strong. That's, that's sort of a, 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 I don't even know if that's. I think I look more Italian than you. <laughs> we, can, we can edit that out. <laughs> Especially now with, that everybody eats pizza, right? So it's like, I don't even, it's not like I'm the, you know, yeah. the only one who eats pizza. You know, it's only the Italians in Chicago and New York that eat pizza. Everybody eats pizza. They eat pizza in Japan. So it's like, what is, I asked this question to Amos Young at, uh, when he was speaking at Talbot a few years back. You know, white cultures has no content in America. There's no content to it. Nobody's mm. Irish anymore. Nobody's Italian or German anymore. Even if you like a bratwurst. You yeah. don't do anything that, anymore that is unique to the culture that you descended from. You just don't. And that's happening to my Mexican friends too. Only the ones who maybe their parents came from Mexico still do certain things that are traditional to maybe even their region. But you get to the third generation, they're not doing the things that are typical of the people in Jalisco or Michoacan. They're just yeah. doing this, you know. So, you know, that, that, that's an inch that we could do another thing on that. But... Anyways, that was a little bit of a tangent or a digression. No, but I think it's, I mean, it, I think it points to two um, aspects of culture that most people just ignore when they talk about cultural appropriation, when you try to cross-identify and stuff like that, is displacement and over time. Yeah, like my family, go, go back, was from Italy. You go to, go to you know, the Bronx. That there's Perry, a Perry, really? Yeah, there's a, Perry, there's a Perry Bakery. I talked to him. Yeah. I don't know your family's back in Rome, but there's, uh, you know, I have uh, you know, this Rome, Rome culture. Yeah. No, there's no possible, even if I wanted it, you know, I would go on YouTube watching things that Rome, you know, ancient Roman Italians did in their homes. I mean, it's still not going to be the same because I'm now I'm just copying something I saw. I never actually lived with those people, had those sort of, I mean, let alone accusing someone else. Well, one of the things that then going back to, whiteness as this sort of reified abstract object um that had that bears certain properties that even even jacob could exemplify those properties jacob could exemplify whiteness by holding to certain views of the family or 
being on time for his appointments or whatever it may be, or being self-sufficient, whatever it may be. Um, in Willie James Jennings' book, which I referenced last time after whiteness, I mean, he describes it as white masculinist self-sufficiency. And to get theological for a second, now I'm pretty sure that uh, Dr. Jennings holds to some kind of correlation theory or a correlation method of theology, which we have spoken about before. But, you know, one final point that we might say to the church specifically is, look, if whiteness has really sort of like a cancer embedded itself in our theology for the last 400 years, then we really need to stop evangelistic ministry to other cultures. Um, because until we weed out that whiteness, um, none of these, all of these ministries are, are effectively preaching some kind of heresy to people in places like India, Africa, Asia, South America, and so on and so forth. This must stop. This is no better than if you are preaching Arianism or tritheism or some other ancient heresy. Uh, so that means your good old, you know, like I use um, through the Bible, J. Vernon McGee. Um, uh, that ministry that's run by Greg Harris, I think is the guy's name, and that is in like dozens of, of countries. And they specialize in getting the Bible into like, you know, more like unreached people groups and places like Indian Africa and stuff. They need to be shut down by somebody. Somebody needs to stop them. And I because think they're preaching whiteness. And I think early church did a mistake, isn't it? I mean, Paul did go to the West. Yeah, he was asked to go to the West. Whereas other disciples did go to the East. You know, to see if, uh, and they did a mistake, I believe, in doing that. Then we have to question the very early church and the disciples who went around the world preaching the gospel. Um, yeah. It, was it, not, it brings up, I think, the question, like you're saying, Jacob, like, are there fundamental truths? That no matter where you're from or what time you're in or what culture you might be practicing, you know, it's wrong. You Aztecs shouldn't be sacrificing people in the same way the Canaanites should have been. It doesn't matter that you're on different continents or in different times. Yeah. You can find my human value. We just need to get a copy oh. of Abolition of Man and send it to every CRT proponent out there and well, that'll solve the whole that's thing. A, that's a dead white <laughs> a book from a dead white male. Oh, yeah, know. fair enough. Okay. And I think Lewis <laughs> and Tolkien, you gotta, we're, church has got to be done with those guys. Well, look, um, maybe in the next, we'll continue this uh, in the next session. I think there's still a lot more to be said. I agree with Logan. We probably do need to get into some specific authors. Um, and uh, of course, we've been a little tongue in cheek here, a little rhetorical. Um, uh, but we did that intentionally, I think, um, to try and draw out some of the uh, less than, um, well, some of the, the, the idea that this really is not an empirically based theory. This is just, it, it, in a sense, it's, it's a lot of assertions at the end of the day without much to back it up evidentially. So um, on that note, then, uh, we'll see you next time and uh, God bless.